All right, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go to the book of Judges. We are in Judges 4 this morning. And uh, as you all know, most of you know anyways, uh, all summer long, uh, even beginning in the spring, we've been going through a sermon series uh, called Blessed to be a Blessing. Really looking at this idea and using this book called Discover Your Gifts. And as we've been discovering our gifts, we've been looking at each of these 12 different gifts um, that uh, people use, God has used uh, in people throughout time in history to grow the church, uh, to uh, glorify God, uh, to uh, encourage one another, to strengthen one another. And today, we are on the gift of leadership. And you might be thinking, ooh, leadership, I'm not the CEO of State Farm. I'm not the chief technology officer at Rivian. I'm not even the, line, the chief lineman over at Beer Nuts. I don't know that I'm a leader or not. Well, I got good news for you because uh, in the book here, uh, Henry Ford, the great uh, automobile guy, the American industrialist says, you don't have to hold a position in order to be a leader. You don't have to hold a position to be a leader. I like that. Because when we think about leaders, sometimes many of us, I think, we think to ourselves, that's not me. That's, that's, that's for those, you know, the big wigs. That's for the, those corporate people. That's for the, the people with a plaque on their desk that says boss or, or team leader or supervisor. That's not me. But according to Henry Ford, you don't need to have a, even a position uh, in order to be a leader. There's a leadership guru, a guy by the name of John Maxwell. He's written a bunch of books on leadership, and I love his definition of leadership. John Maxwell says, leadership is influence, nothing more and nothing less. Leadership is influence, nothing more and nothing less. And so when I said this morning that we're going to talk a little bit about leadership, you might have thought of yourself, ah, I don't know. But I think we can all lean into this idea of influence, nothing more and nothing less. I hope each one of you thinks of yourselves as someone who you can influence. Because you've got people of influence in your life, whether it's kids, coworkers, neighbors, church people, maybe people in your life group. We've all got people that we can influence. And so I think this is a message for all of us this morning in terms of how we can grow in our leadership, how we can grow in our influence. Because when we lean into uh, our leadership, when we lean into our influence, you never know you never know who you might impact, your leadership, your influence, how your life, your leadership might touch others in such a way that they become followers of Jesus or walk closer with Jesus or become a better version of themselves. Maybe they become a better employee, they become a better uh, neighbor, they become a better friend, and hopefully they become a closer follower of Jesus because of your leadership, because of your influence. You never know. So today we're going to look at the book of Judges, and if you don't have your Bibles open, I want to invite you to go to the book of Judges in the Old Testament. 
Um, and by the way, I don't know if you guys have been bringing your Bibles while I've been gone, but uh, if you stop bringing it, um, bring your Bibles back to church. Um, you can certainly uh, look at, look along, follow along in the Bible app, or you can put it on a tablet, whatever, uh, however you want to do that. I personally like a, 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 an, an old school Bible. I like the paper. But bring your Bibles uh, as we're uh, looking at Judges 7 this morning, or Judges 4 this morning. Judges is the seventh book in the Old Testament. It's one of the saddest books in the, old, uh, in the Bible, I think. And it's a sad book because it's a story of failure. And not just one failure, but it's repeated failure. Failure over and over and over. And the book of Judges tells a story about 12 different judges. And each and every one of them were failures uh, in, in some, at some level in some sort. Most of them were abysmal failures. So it's really sad to, you pick up the book of Judges and you're just like, man, these guys were messed up. They just failed over and over and over. In fact, if you feel like a failure, you should read the book of Judges. You'll feel so much better about yourself because you'll think, man, I'm, I'm not that bad. But it really is the story of these, these leaders, uh, these judges who were trying to influence and impact God's people, the Israelites. And what we see time and time again, just different names, different circumstances, but really the same concept, the same model of what's going on. It's called the sin cycle. And the sin cycle is simply this, is that God creates, God does something wonderful, God intervenes, God does some extraordinary work uh, in the life of God's people, and all of a sudden, God's people look at that and they begin to not appreciate it. They begin to just go their own way, they turn their back on God, and they walk away. And then pretty soon, there are consequences to the sin, and the, and the consequences are usually so bad that the people are absolutely miserable. They've hit rock bottom and because the consequences are horrible. And so they cry out to God saying, God, rescue us, save us, help us. We need you. And then God shows up and rescues the people. And then there's prosperity and peace again. And then the sin cycle continues. It just keeps going. And so the people turn their backs on God. And so it's just this, this loop that happens over and over and over in the book of Judges. Frankly, this happens over and over throughout the Old Testament. But this, it's, it, it really um, uh, is very prominent in the life of, uh, or in the book of Judges. And today, we are going to look at one of the judges, one of the 12 judges, a woman by the name of Deborah. Deborah literally means honeybee. And I love this name of Deborah uh, because I think that's really who she is. She stings her enemies, and yet she brings sweetness to the people of Israel. That's, who, that's what honeybee, that's what a honeybee does, right? And this is who Deborah is. So I wanted to give you some time to get to Judges 4. Everybody in Judges 4 got your Bibles open? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this beautiful day you've given to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for inviting us to be leaders, to lean into what it means to influence others. And so, God, as we consider the life of Deborah, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Before we get to Judges 4, I'm just going to read Judges 3 to kind of tee it up for you. Uh, 3.30. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. 
So God's people, God brought the people, the Israelites, into the promised land. And things are pretty good, but there are still enemies among them. And at this point in time, there is peace in the land. Judges 3.30 tells us 80 years of peace. And whenever there's peace and prosperity, people get a little bit complacent in their lives. They begin to think that they can kind of, you know, everything's good, so we don't need to follow God. Does this sound familiar to anyone here? I mean, this is America, right? Prosperity, peace, people turning their back on God. We don't need God. Everything's good, right? This is why sometimes when people tell me, the Bible's so irrelevant, doesn't have anything to do with today. I know that they haven't read the Bible because it has everything to do with today. I mean, this is the day and time in which we live. Things are so good, so much peace, so much prosperity. We've turned our backs on God. And this is, of course, what the Israelites did. Okay, um, Judges 4, beginning with verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosheth, Hagoyim, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. I mean, you see what's going on? It's the sin cycle, right? 80 years of peace and prosperity. They turn their back on God, and all of a sudden there are consequences. God allowed the local leaders, the local rulers to take over them and uh, sold them into the hands of King Jabin, who reigned. And then there's this military uh, leader, a guy by the name of Sisera, the commander of the army. And it was a well-stacked army chariots, all sorts of weaponry, metal that they could fight off and take care of and oppress the Israelites. And then, of course, after this goes on for some time, the Israelites are, God, we're sorry. We've turned our back on you. Help. Rescue us. Save us. Again. Right? And it says, Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosheth Hagoyim. And Herosheth Hagoyim is up in the northern part of what we know of as Israel today. It's in the region of Galilee. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, what does that even mean? What does that even look like? Does Galilee, is it kind of like Decatur? Is it like Peoria? I mean, is it like, I don't know, uh, Champagne? What, I mean, what does it look like? This region up in the north, it's hilly, it's beautiful, it's, it's more like the bluff country, I would say, over by Quincy in Illinois. It's these rolling hills, it's fertile land, it's a beautiful, beautiful area. It's not like around here, flat and farming. It's majestic, it's golden, rolling, these rolling hills. And the reason I bring that up to you and I explain that to you is because I think it's important for us to understand the geography, the topography, what it looks like so we can step into the story. Because there's a lot of details here. And if we don't understand and can't kind of visualize what it looks like, it's hard for us to kind of step into the story with these funny names of people and places. 
And frankly, this is one of the reasons why we're going to be taking a trip to Israel uh, next year. And I want to invite some of you, all of you, to come along. In fact, if you're tuning in online, uh, you're also welcome to come on this trip to Israel. When you go on a trip to Israel to experience the Holy Land, it changes how you read Scripture. Somebody once described it to me, it's like going from black and white television to color. And I think that's kind of it, but it's so much more. The first time I went to Israel in 2005, it absolutely blew my mind for how I understood Scripture. It was no longer these kind of random facts and people and places, but all of a sudden, I was standing uh, in places that I never could have imagined that are in Scripture. Going across the Sea of Galilee in a boat, you will not read Scripture the same. When you stand in the places of the Old Testament people who fought these battles, you will stand in those very places and you can just picture and imagine all that's going on. When you wander through the streets of Jerusalem, you see the places where Jesus was tortured, where he stood before Pontius Pilate, and you get to go to the garden tomb and see where Jesus walked out of the tomb and said, I'm alive. It'll change you. In fact, I think every Christian should consider going to Israel at least once in their life. It will absolutely change you in terms of how you read Scripture. In fact, I would go so far as to say that I learned more on just that one trip to Israel than I learned in seminary in terms of appreciating the Bible. And even when I was reading this this past week, this text, I was just like, I was there. I can see these places I can smell them. I can, I, I can just step right into the place. So in a couple of weeks, we're having an informational meeting. And I will encourage all of you to seriously consider going with us uh, next year. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lipidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah. How would you like to have a palm tree named after you? She did between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. So Deborah's a leader. Honeybee, there she is, holding court as people are having disputes about uh, sheep and goats and camels and all that stuff and land and property. And they come to Honeybee and say, help us out here. And so she's helping them to make some decisions. It's a beautiful place. Um, where, she's, where she's doing this. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands." So there she is. This is what a prophet does, is they speak truth. They, they speak on behalf of God to the people. And so Deborah goes to this guy, Barak, and says, hey, that guy, the leader of the enemy army, I want you to go against him, and I want you to take your people, 10,000 men, and go up to Mount Tabor. That doesn't sound like a great battle plan, does it? Go climb up the mountain. It's a defensive posture. It's a posture of waiting and preparation. And she says, once you get up there, 
I'm going to distract. I'm going to uh, bring Sisera into your hands. She says, this is what I want you to do. Deborah's inviting Barak into a, a, a position of leadership. And now listen how he responds. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go with you. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Wow, he's a brave man. I mean, how would you like to have that guy as your leader, your commander? I want my mommy. I want you to go with me. I can't do it without you. I mean, he just does not give us much uh, confidence that he is really much of a leader at all. And this whole idea where someone in Scripture is invited to do something, there's a term for it. It's called conditional obedience. And maybe you've done it sometime in your life. I know I have. Hey, God, if you do this, this, and this, then I'll do that. Hey, God, here I am. Send someone else to do that, fix that problem. Right? We, we look to God and we say, God, if you do these things, then I will act. If you do those things, then I will behave a certain way. We all fall into this temptation of conditional obedience. And if you've been around Faith Lutheran Church for any amount of time, you know that we push against this idea of conditional obedience, this whole idea of negotiating with God. God, if you do this, then I will do that. God, I don't feel like it. God, it's inconvenient. God says, don't really care. I don't really care how you feel. I really don't care what the circumstances are like. I'm asking you to do this. I'm calling you to be obedient. And so we got to lean into this all the time, this whole idea of conditional obedience and reject how we're feeling in the moment, reject the circumstances around us. When God calls us to go, even when we don't understand, we are called to live into and be obedient to it. This is frankly one of the reasons why we, uh, early on, God gave us this name, Faith Lutheran Church. It's this idea that even when you don't fully understand, even when you see the circumstances around you, they don't make sense, we're still going to walk by faith. We're still going to be obedient to who God has called us to be, even when the odds are against us. And certainly the odds were against Deborah and Barak in this moment in time. And this is how Barak responds. If you go with me, Deborah, I will go. But if you don't, I won't go. He's such a weak leader. Verse 9. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with them. And I love Deborah's response. So here's this wimpy response of Barak. Oh, if you go, I'll go. But if you don't go, I'm staying home. She doesn't ridicule him. She doesn't lean into him. She doesn't chew him out. She responds with grace. She says, okay, I'll go with you. I love that response. And I think that ought to always be our response as Jesus followers when people are disobedient, 
when we're disobedient. We look at one another and rather than just kind of knock one and over over the head with the Bible or uh, really give each other a hard time, just look at each other and say, okay. But she doesn't stop there. She offers him grace by saying, I'll go with you. But then she speaks truth. She says, because of your disobedience, because of your unwillingness, because of your conditional response, you will not get the credit. A woman will be the one who takes care uh, of this battle. Grace and truth. And we try and live into this all the time. And I know I got to get better at it. Some of us are better at grace. Some of us are better at truth. And I think this is a wonderful response of both grace and truth. I think the other thing that this, this little part of the story tells me is that God's going to do what God is going to do with or without you and me. If God comes to you and says, this is what I want you to do, and you say, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I can do that. Looks too hard. I don't feel like it. Seems pretty inconvenient. If God wants that done, he's going to do it with or without you. He'll just go find someone else to do it. But when you are disobedient to God, you also don't get to experience the blessing. And this is what Deborah says to Barak. Okay, you don't, you don't, I'll go with you. It's fine. But you're not going to be blessed because of this. And oftentimes as I talk to people in the church, oh, they want the blessings of God. They just don't want to experience the obedience of God on the front end. And what, Bar what Deborah is saying to Barak is first you got to be obedient, and then when you're obedient, you're going to experience the blessings of God. So it's the hard part of stepping out in faith, and then God promises to bless us. And when he blesses you, it will be the most amazing, extraordinary adventure you have ever gone on. Some of the greatest experiences of my life is, have be been because uh, of the ways in which I've stepped out into the unknown. When there's great risk involved, when I didn't understand something, I'm just like, all right, Lord, I'm going to do it anyways. I don't get it, but I'm going to do it. And God just blows me away in terms of the blessing. And I know many of you have experienced the same thing too. So this idea of obedience and then blessing. Verse 11. Now Haber the Kenite uh, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent uh, by the great tree um, in uh, Zananim near Kadesh when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera summoned from Herosheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots filled with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with his 10,000 men following him. So Deborah says, Ah, it's time. The people are enemies, and Sisera, God has put them right in the place where God wants them. So they move from this defensive posture up on Mount Tabor. Now go down and attack them by the river. The timing has been set. Verse 15. 
At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and he fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Herosheth Agoyim, and all of Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. It says the Lord routed Sisera. Not Barak, not the Israelites, the Lord did. And I think it's always important that we remember the battles we fight on this earth for God are God's battles to fight. And when we are victorious, we give him the glory. We give him the credit for all that he is doing. And I love this story because this is what happens over and over throughout Scripture is that God takes some really unequipped, some farmers, some people who that's not their day job. They're not soldiers. They've got hoes and sickles and plows. And he puts them up against these well-trained soldiers with chariots and weapons and shields and swords and all sorts of stuff. And God wins. And so the credit goes to God time and time again. This is the battle. And Sisera's army is defeated. Verse 17. Sisera, uh, uh, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Yael. That's how we will pronounce it uh, in your Bibles, Yael. The wife of Haber, the Kenite. Because there was an alliance between King Jabin of Hazor and the family of Haber, the Kenite. Yael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in and don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. So Sisera's army's been defeated. He gets off his horse, he runs away, and as he's running, he sees this tent of one of his allies, one of his, uh, the people that uh, his uh, tribe had made an alliance with. And Yael says, hey, come on in here. I'm going to protect you. You can hide in this place. And he's thinking, oh, good. I can kind of hide out a little bit. And she says, hey, you can go hide under this blanket even. So when they come looking for you, it's all going to be good. And his heart, you know, it's just pounding. It's thumping. He's been in battle. And now he's on retreat. His people have been defeated. And now he, think he, could, he thinks he can find this place where he can just kind of rest. He says, I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. I would think he would want a drink of water after all that's been going on that day. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Now, the thing you, I don't know about you, but when I'm really hot and thirsty, I don't want milk. It seems a little odd to me. I want a glass of cold water or just water water. But she gives him milk. And this isn't just like milk that you and I might get out of the fridge. This is probably goat milk. And it's probably warm because there's no refrigeration, of course. And it's probably a little bit fermented kind of like yogurt. So think about this, fighting all day, really thirsty, running away. You're just, you're, you're, you're parched. You want a drink and you got some liquid, warm goat milk yogurt. And he guzzles it because he just needs to quench his thirst. Now the thing about milk is it's got tryptophan in it. And tryptophan is that, that thing that kind of uh, me mediates our, our melatonin and our serotonin in our bodies. Am I right, Rich? About right? Okay. Melatonin. Okay. Fact check me. Makes you sleepy, right? So you drink a, a bunch of milk, and you're like, 
I'm kind of tired. And tryptophan is that thing in Turkey too, right? So after a big Thanksgiving meal, you're just like, oh, I'm so tired. Why am I so tired? It's the tryptophan. Same with the milk. And he's just guzzled a ton of goat milk. And he's like, oh, I'm tired. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. And he falls asleep. I'll bet he did. But Yael, Haber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and quietly went to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. I guess he did, right? Now, Yael, you have to know, she's a Bedouin. Well, she's used to tents and tent pegs. She's probably the person that whenever they moved would set up the tent. She knew exactly how to do this. She was very comfortable with a hammer and a tent peg. So there's this guy in her tent sleeping away. She quietly walks over to him right into his head. Again, people say to me, the Bible's so boring. They haven't read the Bible. It's filled with lots of gore and crazy stuff that's going on. I love this part of the story. Just this, oh, we're going to get him. And it's, it's not just that, you know, she put, a, steer, uh, put a, 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 a spear through him. She pegs his head into the ground with a tent peg. A woman. Not a great part of the story. That's a, that's a detail that we might just kind of read over sometime. But this is what God does. And you might even say that Sisera died of a splitting headache. I was working on that all week long. Okay, verse 22. Just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera. And Yahweh went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. And so at the end of the story, the sin cycle has been completed. God is victorious. Barak doesn't get the credit. Deborah doesn't get the credit. Judges tell us God gets the credit for rescuing and restoring the people once again. And so everybody's excited. They're excited that, you know, the battle's, battle's been won, that the, the enemy has been defeated. And so Deborah says, I know, let's sing a song. And so she breaks into a song and uh, uh, Judges uh, chapter 5, it's, all, it's a song. It's all about uh, what God has done for the people. And then the song begins this way. When the princes in Israel sit around, when the princes in Israel hide, when the princes in Israel make excuses, when the princes in Israel pray for someone else to do it, it's not what a Bible says, does it? When the princes in Israel take the lead. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise 
the Lord. I love that. Isn't that a great song? We should sing that some Sunday. Is there a song about that, Jeff, somewhere? Is there a song about like hammering a peg into someone's head? That'd be a great song too for you to write this week. Praise the Lord when God's people lead. When we lead, when we seek to uh, influence other people, God gets the glory because he's using us. He's using your gifts to bring him glory, to encourage other people, to help other people. And you never know in your influence how your influence might just help others along the way. Now, as I shared earlier, uh, we've been on sabbatical for a while, and part of our sabbatical was spending 10 weeks uh, in Europe, just kind of wandering around Europe to these different places of the, the Protestant Reformation sites. And now, if you've ever been to Europe and traveled around to Europe, you know there are these massive cathedrals everywhere. They are ornate. They just go up and up and up. They take sometimes hundreds of years to build. And you go inside these cathedrals, and they, they kind of take your breath away. They're just so big. And it's like, how did they do that without cranes? How did they do that with primitive engineering? How did they do that? But they did it. And you look at the, the, the architecture and the beauty and the stone carving. It's just like, dang. And several of these cathedrals, as we went into, we would climb up the bell towers or the spires going all the way up. I just got worn out walking to the top. And these guys did it every day for years and years and years to build out these massive, amazing cathedrals. And then you go inside and you see this beautiful artwork, sculptures by Michelangelo. It's like, dang, how did he do that? And it's, just, it, it's just overwhelming and overpowering. And they're massive. And we had an opportunity to travel around to um, visit some of the largest cathedrals in the world, Milan. In Sevilla, Rome, Antwerp, and to go and visit these places, to go into Vatican City, into St. Peter's, it's like, oh, powerful. But I got to tell you, of all the cathedrals we visited in Europe this past summer, the one that I was most looking forward to was in Prague in the Czech Republic. And so as we wandered around the city of Prague, also known as the city of spires, because they have so many cathedrals in Prague, we visited many of the big ones. We wandered, we wandered, and we wandered. And I really wanted, it was actually the number one thing on my list in Prague, was to go into the cathedral of the place of a man who was one of the most influential people in the Protestant Reformation, Jan Hus. Look to the person next to you and say, Jan who? Jan Hus. And Jan Hus, he didn't have a cathedral. He didn't even have a big church. He was a preacher in a chapel. It's called Bethlehem Chapel. And after we visited all these cathedrals and saw all these people milling about, we went to Bethlehem Chapel. Frankly, it's maybe, maybe twice the size of Union Park here. Maybe. I went inside. No tourists. Because nobody really cares about a little campus ministry, the University of Prague. But that's where Jan Hus was the preacher. And 100 years before Martin Luther showed up on the scene, 600 years ago, 
There was Jan Hus standing in this very simple, every bit as simple as Union Park. None of the ornate stuff, no artwork, no statues by Michelangelo. There he was, preaching. He was talking about how it was wrong that the church, the leaders, the power brokers were charging for the sale of indulgences, that, that people could actually buy their salvation or buy lesser time in purgatory. And he was starting to get people mad, but it didn't stop there. Because then he translated scripture from Latin into the Czech language so that people could read it for themselves. And then he started preaching, not just in Latin, but he said, I'm done preaching in Latin. I'm going to preach in the Czech language. Well, no wonder people started showing up. They could actually understand what he was talking about. I mean, do you hear these themes that are arising? Well, the church leaders, the power brokers, they didn't like this. They didn't like the preaching. So they said, okay, we're going to have a church meeting. Jan, we need you to come to Konstanz. And in 1415, he stood before the church leaders. And they said, you got to recant. You're causing problems in the life of the church. And Jan Hus said, I can't. It's in the Bible. So what we got to do. And he challenged the authority of the church and said, you want to know what's authoritative? Folks, it's not you. It's this. They said, all right, we're going to practice some church discipline. You're going to die by being burned at the stake. Now, I've been in a lot of church meetings before. I've not had that threatened on me before. I'm glad. Thank you. But that's how they did it back then. You go against the system, and the system burns you, literally. So they got a bunch of sticks together, started a fire, tied Jan Hus to this fire. And by the way, Jan Hus, Hus in the Czech language literally means goose. So they're cooking a goose. So they're ridiculing him. They're mocking him. Hus, since you wouldn't recant, I'm going to burn you. We're going to cook the goose. And there's Jan Hus as the flames are licking around him. And they're coming closer and closer to his body. He says these words. He says, you're burning a goose. But in a hundred years, you'll have a swan which you can neither roast nor boil. hundred years later, 1517, in an obscure town called Wittenberg, an obscure preacher by the name of Martin Luther, who, by the way, had a coat of arms, a family shield, was a swan, stepped onto the stage, walked over to the church bulletin board, and hung up the 95 theses. Jan Hus said, a hundred years from now, a swan is coming, and you won't be able to cook him. Hus, like Deborah, was a prophet. He spoke the truth. He spoke God's word, whether people liked it or not. But he was also a prophet because he was speaking about the future. This is what's going to happen. And of course, Jan Hus never knew Martin Luther. And this is why he was a prophet. And I love the story. When I read uh, Deborah this week in preparation for today, my mind immediately went 
to Jan Hus. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I have trouble relating to big figures, big leaders like Martin Luther. Anybody else, anybody else who can really relate to Martin Luther and all that he did? I'm like, whoa, not, I'm not that smart, not that courageous. I could never do what he did. But I can relate to Jan Hus, a guy who just looks around him, the people of influence around him, the small guy says, who can I influence? Who can I lead? Kids, grandchildren, co-workers, friends, who are those people in my sphere of influence that I can help them to become a better version of themselves and maybe, just maybe, walk closer with Jesus? Because when you lean into your influence, when you lean into your leadership, you Never know how you might be influencing people 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, even 100 years into the future. And this is why leadership and influence are so important. And for us to live into uh, this story of Deborah, a woman by all accounts, seems like kind of small potatoes in the grand scheme of things. But because of what she did and how she leveraged her influence, the nation of Israel rose again. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who comes to us and meets us and invites us to lean into our influence. And Lord, we pray, though the details of our life are different than Jan Hus or the details of our lives are different than Deborah, God, help us to be every bit as obedient to the ways in which you are calling us according to your word. So thank you, Lord. Equip us, empower us to serve you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.